<laughs> okay, guys, you're on. Is that us? That's you. All right. You can tell we planned really well for this. <laughs> um, which our planning involved text. You want to be here? Cool. All right. See you there. Oh, we had about a one minute combo in yesterday. So I hear you're talking about really important stuff, and that is blinding. Uh, I might need you to hit the arrow every once in a while. Um, and we're just we're going to talk about some uh, real time issues. Uh, not that what, I don't even know all the topics you've been covering, but it sounds like they are super important, but uh, Josh wants to bring it into, uh, this is simple stuff. There are children who are living in war zones, and it is the church's um, call to respond to widows and orphans in their need, and really anyone in their need. One of my favorite authors, uh, writers, speakers, psychologists, um, I have the privilege of being on an advisory board with her now. She's actually someone that I quoted in every single paper I wrote in grad school as I focused on trauma counseling. Um, and she has this bit that she does way better than me called trauma as mission. If we are going to go to the anyone in the world, we have to recognize that there are traumatized people. And if you show up just trying to share the good news but as someone else called it, with a hole in the gospel, you're missing the mark. You have to address the fact that there are people dealing with really deep wounds. We have to respond to those as Christ would. He didn't look at a man who was lame and say, too bad, but hey, follow me, but not bother with the issue that he could walk. He addressed the physical needs as well as the deeply spiritual needs and often those physical needs as we step into those can become a bridge to um, someone even caring to hear what you have to say about their spiritual needs. And so we're going to look at um, something briefly. I just want to give you context of who we are. As I, know, I know a lot of your faces, um, but some of them I do not. So briefly, Beth and I work for Exile International. My beautiful wife is actually the founder of that. She's a psychologist. I'm a trauma counselor. That's how we got to uh, do what we do now. But Exile International is responding to the needs of children who have been abducted by rebel armies, that happens in the world, uh, men and women with guns who show up in villages and they murder, and then they take those who are just barely big enough to carry a gun, but then still small enough to be overpowered and manipulated. So Exile International was founded to respond to the wounds of these children, and also children who have been orphaned by war. Um, so, in brief context, I think, uh, can you go, yeah, sure, that one works too. I'm not even sure what order I put these slides in. <laughs> I just kind of borrowed from uh, another presentation. Uh, so, this is what we do. We restore rescued child soldiers uh, and children orphaned by war to become leaders for peace through holistic rehabilitation and art-focused trauma care. Now, this is not supposed to be a pitch about Exile International, so if you want to know more, just go to the website or something or find me afterwards. We can tell you more about that. But uh, go to the one with the map. I think that's one back, maybe. Um, um, how about it? Yeah. There we go. All right. So for context, in this circle, so Congo... This is about half the size, a third to half the size of the United States of America. So we're not talking about a state within a country. <laughs> Africa is a continent. It's huge. This is half the size of the United States. Now this circle here 
is whatever percentage of a third of or half of the United States that would be. But in this circle here, about 100,000 children uh, have been abducted and forced into slavery. Many of them given guns, many of them forced to participate in violence, many of them abused and killed themselves. And also, across the ent entire country, about 4 million children have been orphaned. It's kind of a big issue, right? Um, so exile exists to step into that gap. Oh, that's even right there. Um, so we've had the privilege to do this for 11 years, and we've had the privilege of seeing about 5,000 of these children go through our care programs and not just uh, disciple them, which is super important, but also step into the needs of their psychological wounds, their emotional wounds, so that they can see Christ. Because we are stepping into that. We are living Christ in their lives. Or really, our staff are, our local men and women who are way cooler, way smarter, way better than Beth and I ever are. Oftentimes, people look at Matthew and Beth and they clap. And like, no, 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 no. The really cool people are there on the ground. You never get to meet them. Um, but we are also here today to share a story of one of the men that we work with. He is our country director. Our programs were started alongside uh, Joseph and Zeke. Joseph uh, was serving this population of children long before Exile International even existed. He worked for a joint UN, United Nations, and Catholic Relief uh, program that existed to help children as they were coming out of the program. But because so many uh, children are being abducted and rescued, um, they only can serve these kids for a couple days to a couple weeks at a time. And after three years of being in hell, you can imagine a couple days to two weeks is not enough. Well, he left his job uh, and started working through his church to start serving 24 rescued child soldiers. Um, because what he was seeing, let me back up just a little bit, he was seeing every six months or so some of the same kids come back through the program because they're rescued. They go, um, they're given this two or three days and what I was told by this same organization, two weeks for the most traumatized child. Um, he's seeing them either become street children or go back to the rebel armies because their families have already been killed or they're rejected. So they come back through, and that's where he said, okay, this isn't working, I'm stepping away, and their church began responding to the need, which is awesome. Uh, at some point in 2008, Beth... Uh, Beth and his uh, trajectories align, which is beautiful. Um, but all to say, this man who Beth's going to tell you about has been devoting his life to restoring the most traumatized people in the world for years. He is one of the best men I've ever known. I'm privileged to call him my brother. And Beth, will you tell us a little bit about Joseph? Yeah. Yeah, so the first time I met him, or one of the first times... Wow, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> I haven't even looked out and seen people that I know and love. Bye, everybody. Um, yeah, the first time I met him, he was working 24, 25 girls and boys, and they were, they were gathered in a room. Um, and I met them for the first time, and he had been working with them for a while. And I asked them to go around the room and let me know their story, how many times they'd been abducted, how old they were when they were kidnapped. Um, and several of them had been abducted two and three times. So they had been abducted, rescued, went back to their village, abducted again, rescued by another rebel group, abducted again. And 
So like Matthew said, he had totally dedicated his life to this. And so we started partnering and working together. Um, we're, he's basically the co-founder of our work in Congo. He's the papa of the program. So I want to echo what Matthew said. People see us and they're like, hey, you guys are awesome. You're like risking your lives. And we're over there a couple months out of the year. Our staff, who are 150 volunteers and staff, are there every day. Um, so we want to keep really putting the highlight on them. So how many of you know Joseph's story and what happened at the end of July? Okay. Um, so what I'm about to tell you isn't anywhere, I mean, those of us who live in America really can't put anything like this in our minds. I wanted to kind of give you that um, before I went into this story. So because the war is going on, clearly there are rebels there. They clearly abduct children. They have guns. The villages are the most dangerous parts of Congo. Um, so the rebel activity had actually increased in the area. And we have um, a rehabilitation care program that's residential. And then we also have over 20 village programs. So they're out in the villages, places that we've never been to some of these places because, one, they're too dangerous and they're so hard to get to. So um, in the village programs, we have leaders there who lead the village programs. Well, for probably a month or six weeks, our core team, our leadership team in Congo, had not gone out to the villages and the programs because it was too dangerous. There were kidnappings. We actually had our nurse that was kidnapped and raped in January. Um, and so she escaped, and she's back at her job, and she's remarkable, doing remarkably well. But we had new kids in our sponsorship program, and so Joseph said, we need to go out to the villages to make sure that these kids are okay, that they enter into the programs the way that they need to. So he and two of our male counselors and our driver went out to one of the village peace programs at the end of July. I think it was the last Saturday of July. Um, on the way back, there were three rebels that came out into the road with guns, um, started shooting, and this is still super fresh to me, so I'm sure I'm going to tear up when I say this, when I tell the story, because I kind of always do. Um, and they came out in the road, and they started shooting our vehicle. Um, there were two cars behind our vehicle that were not associated with us. Two people were killed in this vehicle. Um, Joseph was shot five times, and he immediately fell out into the road because one of the bullets damaged his back. And our driver, the glass shattered, and so it shattered kind of in his face, um, and he was disoriented. He just kind of ran into the bush or the forest, and our two counselors, the rebels, put on the ground, held them at gunpoint, and robbed them. So at, um, at that point, our car had been shot, um, and they had stolen all the phones. So. I don't want to make this story too long. Basically, uh, Joseph was dying and bleeding out. And the shorter version of the story, which if you have time, I will tell you the longer version of the story because it's completely miraculous and you can see God's hand in all of it. Um, but it took them three different vehicles to get him to the hospital, which was three and a half hours after he was shot. So any normal person in a normal situation would have completely died, but he didn't. And they got him to the hospital. Um, he is paralyzed from the waist down. 
and we transferred him to a hospital in Rwanda where he had some surgeries. Um, one of the bullets punctured his lung. And honestly, we didn't know if he was going to make it or not, but he is alive, which is completely remarkable. Um, he can move from the waist up. He completely has his brain function. So um, I left a couple days after this happened to get on a plane to Rwanda. And when I got there, when I got there, one of the first things he said was, um, he said, Mom, you know you call us heroes, but it is not without a sacrifice. And I think what he was saying is that I knew that this could happen. Reality is that no one ever dreamed this would happen. He never dreamed that this would happen. Uh, but I think he was kind of calming my guilt a little bit to say, you know, this is... I felt like I was talking to this wounded soldier who had just got in from battle. Um, his faith is completely remarkable. Within three days of being in the hospital, he said, if my legs work or my legs do not work, I will still serve God because God has called me to work with these children. Um, in my time, and then Matthew's going to share his time with Joseph after he, he went back a couple, I guess a month or six weeks after this happened, but our staff really blew me away with their faith. So I was the one that had to tell the staff that the doctors were giving him a 4% chance to walk again. And hapana means no in Swahili. And so as soon as I said, okay, this is what the doctors are saying. The doctors are saying he has a 4% chance of ever being able to walk again. And they looked at me and they said, hapana. Like, that is not true. And immediately they said, well, that's just where God comes in. Um, and so their faith uh, this whole time has just been remarkable. And we're choosing to believe he's going to walk again. So Matthew can fill you in on some of the news that we've gotten over the past couple of weeks, which has kind of been remarkable. Um, but we share that story with you, and Matthew will kind of share some other things that Joseph has shared just to really give glory to God through all of this and the incredible faith of people on the front lines. We think we have problems. Um, and I don't want to downplay the reality of that. Everyone has problems and everyone has wounds, but Matthew made a joke this morning because I was like trying to put something, I was trying to get my earrings and then something fell out and I tried like three or four times to pick it up and I go, like that. And he goes, oh, you're so worked out because your earring fell out of your bowl, but our friend is paralyzed. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, check, check. But it is like we get so consumed with our day-to-day -day and our American problems and like issues that we all have honestly the privilege of coming together and talking about for an hour when reality is that most people in the world are living in poverty. Um, a huge number of the world is living in war and fear for their lives every day. We watched Harriet Tubman last night, the movie, and if you guys have not seen that movie, you have to go and see it. And one of the things that she was saying, and I'll stop talking after this because I'm not supposed to take it the whole time, but she was talking to a group of Af African, well, they were Africans who were transferred over to America, but they had not been slaves in the North. And they were kind of to the point of just giving up on the whole thing because it was going to be too hard. And she stepped up and she said, you guys do not know what it's like to be a slave. 
And then she just started talking and talking and talking about the realities of being a slave and putting everyone in their place. And so it made me think we do not have a clue how the rest, maybe not the rest of the world, but a lot of the world actually lives day to day. So, yeah. yeah. Say something about that little verse that uh, you, you told us about. Yeah. About, about where, where she oh, I have some such good news about that since I've told you. Yeah. So she was... She's in her early 20s. Her name is Florence. She's a joy, and she just adores her job. And she was walking home from a Saturday worship service that we have with um, our kids and our staff. And kidnapped, drugged, um, taken to the bush, which is the forest. She was raped, and she woke up, and she didn't know where she was. She called Joseph, first person she called, and he came to get her. Um, And she's recovered well. I think the... The heart, the, the fear kind of in her mind is that she'll never be married again. Again, she'll never be married. Because when you're raped in the culture of Congo, if you're married, your husband leaves you. Even if, of course, it's not your fault. Or if you're unmarried, you often will never be married. So that's been our prayer. And the great news that I have is that dating isn't a term in Congo. You just skip, you just start talking and then you get married. Yeah. Um, but she, in our terminology, she's dating one of our male counselors who is precious. He is so, so precious. And if you, I don't know that we have him or Florence on here, yeah. do we? Oh, no, that's not um, but when you see her, her face lights up with joy when she smiles. When you see him, his face lights up with joy when he smiles. So when I got that news, I was like, oh, they're so perfect together. <laughs> um, so that's the update on her. Yeah. Um, we're going to let Joseph uh, share a little inspiration for you. Uh, he made this video, actually, for Hope Wins. And I'll stand up for two seconds. Um, so he made this video for Hope Wins. We invited him to uh, say hello. And then welcome everyone. Hope Wins was our fundraiser that we had about a month ago or so. So we'll uh, watch this about a minute and a half video. Hopefully not all of this has been heavy. Uh, part of our goal today is to inspire you uh, by the faith of our brothers and sisters. So let's let Joseph do that. If I do this right. Well, shucks. <laughs> Y'all are so kind, (laughs) patient. There we go. Dear brothers and sisters, I'm very happy for seeing how much you stand for paying for me. It makes me uh, healed. And uh, this time, I am very excited to see brothers, to see sisters, to be mobilized, to pray for me, to support me, forgetting a good health. God bless you. I now continue to pray for me. I need to stand up and uh, to work for the gospel of God to teach as I did. God bless you. I can say many things, but uh, children, 
Okay, so that was about a month ago. Um, many of you have been praying with us that he would be approved for a visa to go to spinal rehab. Finally made it to spinal rehab in South Africa about a week uh, ago, last weekend. Last yeah. Um, so the, most, the night before they left, though, the team gathered around him to pray and ask the Lord for a miracle. Those prayers that most of us, if we're honest, were afraid to pray. I know that I'm supposed to pray and believe, but I find myself afraid. Um, because what if God says no? Um, well, they prayed that kind of prayer. And the update we got from uh, one of our other leaders was, hey, we did this. We prayed. We asked the Lord that Joseph would walk again. And then we asked Joseph after we prayed, Joseph, do you feel any different? <laughs> and they videoed this. I didn't bring that video. But his right foot did this. And then his left foot, not as much, but a little bit. So it wasn't just their words. I got to see video. It is true. So he's not walking yet, y'all. But that is huge progress because a month ago, we were only hoping that he would regain uh, feeling. We were only hoping he would someday um, walk again. We knew our staff were believing he would walk again, and I think maybe Beth and I are finally there in believing with them. And then next day, he gets to South Africa. This is last Sunday. Um, we get a message from the doctor. She's blown away um, by the progress that she sees already from the update she received from the prior doctor. And the prior doctor had told us again, 4%, never updated that. Our first message from her was, He's going to walk again. With assistance, probably, but he's going to walk again. So that's the update with him. Uh, if you can go just to the next slide, I just have one more. Um, I just want to show you one of the, just press the arrow, I think. Oh, it's come unplugged. Oh, technical issues. Well, I'm gonna yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, anyways. Where is it? There he is. Okay, so this is what Joseph is investing his life into. Um, so I told you about the pain of these kids, but I want you to know about the inspiration. And that's um, young men like this, Baraka, and Innocent in the background, and Alice. These are young men and women who are graduating from the program, and I know this is old. It's 2014. There was a broader context. You had to be there. Um, sorry. Uh, but the point here is that young men and women, their lives are being changed. Responding to their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, their lives are being changed. They are being discipled. Not only that, but they are passionate about others knowing what Christ has done in their lives. 
And starting in 2014, this young man and two other graduates began replicating the program. That's really how the village programs that Beth mentioned, that's how those began to spread, was they started doing it on their own. So around 2014, we started to get an idea of what God was doing, and we started investing there. And now more than half of the programs are led by young men and women who were once victims, once child soldiers, who are now, they're not just survivors, they're thriving. They're leaders for peace. They're influencing their communities. And we believe that this is how Congo is going to go from a place once known or always known for war and fighting and violence, cycles of violence and corruption. We believe someday that we're going to look and see that a nation has been transformed because you can't stop these guys and you can't stop what God is already doing. So thanks for letting us share a bit about that. I have one other thing to add, which we, I don't know why we always forget this part. And I'm not a numbers person, so um, I was going to ask you. I think yeah. over the year, the last year and a half, a hundred of our kids have been baptized. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, they're kids that we couldn't reach. Like, we don't speak Swahili. We don't speak French. Um, I mean, half of those were led to Christ by graduates. these graduates yeah. that went through the program and said, hey, I've got to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did. Sorry, I have to share my <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to share one other thing that Joseph said um, that just blew me away. When he was with Matthew in the hospital, and Matthew recorded it because he said he felt like he was like a student, and that Joseph was teaching him from the hospital bed. And one of the things that he said is that, um, again, whether my legs work or they don't work, God has saved my life, and that is enough. And just those words struck me so hard because it's so anti-American for anything that we have to be enough. Mm -hmm. And just let that soak in just a little bit. He is literally saying what he did, he saved my life and that's enough. But for us, anything our spouse does, it's not enough. Money we have, it's not enough. The house that we live in, not big enough. The car that we have, it's too old. It's not new enough. Our kids, their grades aren't good enough. And it's a a disease of our culture. And so it struck me so hard that our friends who live in developing countries, and Steve, you can speak to this too, they're so overjoyed with anything that they have because it's just enough because it's really all they have. And so it becomes enough. And so then that's why we see this joy with people who live in developing countries and this intense gratitude for small things because they don't have this disease that we have. So that's all I want to share. Well, I have the privilege of getting to travel uh, to Africa and work with some of the ministries that we actually support. Uh, In May, I traveled to Sierra Leone and I've, I lived for 21 years in Central America in a majority world country, and I know the dangers that you have as you uh, go on that. My daughter was kidnapped and rescued, all of those stories, but I wanted to give you some contemporary stories that I think are just amazing. Uh, I flew with uh, three, uh, two others. We flew into Sierra Leone. 
we had to go from Freetown to Bow, which is about a four-hour drive. We got in at 8 o'clock at night, and we were traveling at 1 o'clock in the morning in Sierra Leone, and I was thinking, we're going to get killed. <coughs> and they didn't even worry about it. They just drove all the way to Bow. <clears throat> what was amazing to me is in the week that I was there, how incredibly transformed the country has become. It's one of the safest countries that I've ever been in. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with what the church is doing there. Um, there's, <laughs> you'll love this name, Shadonkey Johnson. Shadonkey Johnson was a pastor and he was working in Sierra Leone. I'd say probably 80% of the population was Muslim uh, for many years. Uh, but uh, because of some of the stories that I'm going to tell you, you can see what has happened there. Uh, in 2005, they started doing what they call disciple-making movements there. Uh, and uh, from 2005, uh, they went from about a thousand people that they were working with that had become Christians to 2019, and the number now is somewhere around 500,000 people have come to Christ. And it's self-replicating. Again, because of the fact, just, just like you're talking about with the child soldiers, they have seen a difference, they have experienced a difference, and they're doing it, and they can do it far better than any missionary can do it. Uh, but I'll just tell you a couple stories, and I think it's the reason why this is happening. One is... And Shadonkey Johnson was actually here at Otter Creek two weeks ago because we had a disciple-making movement training program here. Uh, one of the things that they criticize the North American church for is they say none of this, nothing can happen that has happened if it isn't for the church's dedication to prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. And while I was over there, they were getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and walking around the community praying for the community. Uh, <clears throat> Shidaki has a very interesting story. And what's fascinating is, is if you talk to him, it has nothing to do with him. Again, it's, uh, he, he's, he's one of the most uh, servant leaders I have ever experienced. In fact, most of the people who have become Christians don't even know who he is. They know his name, but it's been people evangelizing people evangelizing people. Uh, so, just a couple of the stories. One is that Shadonki had an opportunity because, you know, Sierra Leone had a ter tremendous civil war, 10 years worth, a tremendous problem with reconciliation. Shadonki was offered a job here in the United States and he refused because he wanted to stay with his people. And so uh, one of the stories that came out of that was that he, was, he had to go find food for his family. He was captured by one of the warlords. They hung him up with his hands tied behind his back for a full day. He still has shoulder problems because of that. The leader came out and was going to kill him. And uh, he was kneeling before the leader, and the guy had a gun to his head. And Shadonki just said, I want you to do one thing before you kill me. I want you to acknowledge who Jesus is. Mm. And the, the, it, 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 it shocked the guy. 
And he said, why would you want me to do that? He says, because I want to see you in heaven. And it so shocked the leader that the leader let him go. And I actually met that leader because he is now one of the pastors in one of the churches. Another one, uh, talking about theological problems, this is the one that really hit me. Uh, you know, Sierra Leone had uh, Ebola crisis. I think they lost, what, 3,500, 4,000 people to Ebola. Uh, can you imagine this church meeting when Shadonki and the other church leaders are going, what can we do about this? When we interviewed people, in Sierra Leone, one of the biggest issues, they said the Civil War was not as bad as Ebola because people were having to bury their parents immediately. They couldn't do any kind of recognition of them. They just had to put them in a bag and throw them in the, the dirt. So the church got together and volunteers put on hazmat suits and went out to the villages and gave formal burials, Muslim and Christian alike. Five of those ministers died of Ebola. And uh, the villages where they went to have churches in them now. Because people said, nobody has ever done anything like that for us. Uh, one of the things that impressed me most uh, about Sierra Leone is we were going out to these rural places and they're not easy to get to by any means. But the kids who have been discipled in the universities are now going out and teaching in the schools that have never had school teachers before. Because that's what a disciple does. And so they go out, they do uh, discovery Bible studies with them, and it is one of those things that I think uh, the church in Bow. I've forgotten the numbers exactly, but it's like they have 31 generations of churches now. A church, starting churches, starting churches, and of course each one of those then starts churches. Another person who was here two weeks ago is a guy by the name of Joseph. I met him. Uh, and again, this, these contacts come through uh, the ministry that we support, Final Command in uh, Murfreesboro. And again, they don't do the ministry. It's all supporting ministers and people in uh, Africa. Uh, what's going on currently in Africa right now is that church uh, in Sierra Leone is working in 16 different countries. Shadonki always sends his best workers to the other countries. And uh, uh, so you've got, uh, and, and they're keeping some pretty good statistics on this. Their estimation right now in those 16 countries is somewhere around 1.5 million people have come to Christ. About 40% of those are Muslims. Uh, but that's part of a larger thing that's going on, which is 55 people movements that are taking place, both there and in... Uh, uh, Arabic countries and in India and there are several million people that are, are working uh, 
all over the place. I mean, it's just amazing because you'll never hear about these people. But they're so excited about it. They have become disciples of Jesus. One of the things that I loved about this work more than anything else was the fact that they actually changed the name from church planting movements to disciple making movements. Because when you think about church planting, you think, oh, we're going to do a Methodist church over there, or we're going to do a church of Christ. Their objective is, is to make people disciples of Jesus. And then they form communities. Um, so, I also had a chance to go to Niger. We actually support five uh, African ministers there. And... Uh, they were, it was amazing. Uh, one of the things, I, I shared just a little bit of a, uh, a blurb in this in, in one of the main services. There is a population there that are called the Tarug people. And they are a tribal nation. Uh, in 2017, there were less than 10 people that were Christian. And this was a group who, if they knew that you had become a Christian from their tribe, you would be dead the next day. Uh, when I was at this uh, disciple-making movement conference in Niger, which was really an odd kind of thing because we flew in and had to go in at night. We couldn't go out of the building. We had to go back uh, to the airport at night. Uh, just a really weird kind of a thing because we were white guys. Uh, <clears throat> but they had 20 Tarug church planters that had come there. And their report was they had a thousand Christians who had come to Christ in 2018. So it was one of those things that I had a chance to witness thinking about, I'm actually in history watching a potential church movement that is taking place in one of the most resistant countries in the world. The Tarug people... Uh, are so militant that the United States has actually got a drone base in Niger trying to suppress these people and the people in, that are doing Boko Haram. So it's, I mean, it's one of those, but what's fascinating is it's not, it's not our weapons, it's not our things that are changing hearts, it's when they finally get introduced to who Jesus Christ is, and they want to become like him, that it starts doing the transformation. Um, Ethiopia has just recently, uh, we had a church planner there, who, a, a medical doctor, who's, and in the last couple of years they've had 150,000 people come to Christ. And they lose people. They lose them. But they, that's part of their DNA, they don't mind it because the fact that they view it as they're working in this kingdom of God that is so genuinely unique that they've never seen it before and they want to share it because it's their life. Um, I, it, it's important that we address all of the issues that we have to address here. But what I love about my travels, especially there in Latin America and other things, is I realize that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than we are, and I'm not even sure. We used to be maybe the center of it. We're not anymore. We're not. There's more African missionaries than there ever will be North American ones now. And they can do a job that's a hundred times better than we can because they speak the language. 
they know the cultures, they know the people. Um, and so the theological issues in Africa are, are we praying enough? Are we fasting enough? Uh, here's a village, uh, one, one of the fascinating stories that they told me in Sierra Leone, and I know we're running out of time, one of the fascinating stories they told me in Sierra Leone was in, I think it was 2011, uh, a group of them got together and said, what are the 19 most resistant tribes in all of Africa? And all of them were Muslim-based in 2011. There are churches in every single one of those tribes now. But it's because of these guys who will get on bicycles and go out and find some access ministry. And one of the things that is, is hard for us to communicate here at Otter Creek, Living Water has been one of the most successful access ministries that we have ever created. Uh, the Sudan, um, Chad. Chad has thousands upon thousands of Christians now because we have provided wells and the church planters go along and, and do this work in villages. And the villages don't get the reason why Christians would ever come and do a well there because they've never seen that from their Muslim brothers. And it's changing lives. And these guys are risking their lives to get out there. I mean... Yeah. The truth of the matter is, is we support some of this stuff, but we're not the heroes. The heroes are the ones who are out there on the field doing that kind of work. I knew in uh, Niger that if I lived there for six months, I would have probably been killed. Because I'm a white guy. And especially from North America. And these guys just do it regularly. And of course, they speak the language and they share their, their faith. So anyway, we wanted to share with you just a little bit. That's, I think, what Josh wanted us to do, is to give you a different perspective on some of the issues that are lived out and worked out in other parts of the world. And I'll tell you, there are some really exciting things going on outside of North America. And I think there's some exciting things that can happen here too, but uh, sometimes the issues are a little bit more different, sometimes they're a little more pressing. That's not to say that our issues aren't important, but uh, it helps to keep us, I think, centered on a perspective that we need to hear. Thank you. Thank you.